Okay, if you've got a Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 21 this morning. If you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's word as Mr. Shad Whiteley reads to us this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new, and then said, Write this down, for these are the words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and the all liars, they will be co-signed into the fiery lake for a burning sulfur. This is the second death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for all you've given us. Thank you as we come to the end um, of this wonderful book of the Bible. I pray that we've been encouraged. Um, and over the next few weeks, as we uh, set our sights towards what that's going to be like when you return, that, Father, we would, uh, our hearts would just be filled with this longing for your second advent, for the return of Christ to make all things new. I pray that you be with us today as we study this text. I, I pray that, uh, that, again, we be encouraged, but, but also convicted. Uh, there's some convicting things in here, and I pray that if anyone doesn't know you today, that, Father, they would put their faith and trust in you so that they could be with you uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's in your name I'm, we pray. Amen. So we, we've already kind of mentioned it, but we're going to celebrate Advent. And so, so first off, I, I just need to throw a thank you out there for, uh, to, to Jen and Knowlton, Morgan Mackey, Mary Baker, Jaden Bland, uh, and Ms. Debbie Kyle. They came up here and they decorated the church for us this week. And so it looks wonderful. It's such a pretty church, but especially after you get it all decorated. Uh, so thank you, ladies, for doing that. Um, and so we're excited uh, about this time of year. We're excited about Advent. And as we've already said, Advent just means arrival or, or coming. And so what we do is that we look back to the first coming of Jesus to this world. And that's what we do now, right? So we're celebrating the fact that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that, that he grew up, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a death that we deserve in our place, taking the full cup of God's wrath upon himself. And then he rose again, defeating Satan's sin and death. And one day he is coming back again. And what's so wonderful is that over the last years we've studied uh, the book of Revelation, we've seen what that return will look like. And, and as we said last week, the book's pattern has been to take us to the end and then it just recapitulates back and it shows us a different camera angle or a different view of what history or, or what the end is going to look like. And so last week we looked at Revelation 20. 
Uh, and, and we looked at uh, the end of the thousand years. And so whether that's a literal thousand years or as I argued, a, a symbolic thousand years, Jesus will return. The books will be open. Every single one of us will be judged. And if our name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life, we will spend eternity separated from him in a place called hell. And then starting in chapter 21, John doesn't recapitulate back this time. He doesn't go all the way back to show us what it looks like again. Instead, John goes all the way to the end. And he, and he shows us what heaven looks like. And it's so cool because when we outlined this, it was perfect that we outlined it to coincide with Advent. So, so what better way um, for us to celebrate Christmas than to remember what Jesus did in his first Advent and then to set our eyes on his second? I think this is awesome. But for me as your pastor, this is kind of refreshing because for the first time in almost a year, we don't have anything we can disagree on. At least I don't think. Right? We, we don't have to worry about whether the timeline is the same as your timeline or Tim LaHaye's timeline or whoever it is that you follow. It's wonderful. Because we can all agree that the new heavens and the new earth are coming. And that we're in Christ, guess what? We get to participate in that. And that's a good thing. So the only thing I would tell you as we get ready to look at, uh, at heaven, and it's just a word of caution, I've, I've said this before, but I, I think I, I need to repeat it, is that when we study heaven, we need to get what heaven is like from the Bible. We see what God's word tells us about heaven. I know there's a lot of little cute stories out there about people that died and had these crazy dreams and they went to heaven. That heaven tourism stuff is not heaven, guys. And if you ever read those books and you study those books, what you find is that there's very little Bible in those books. And in those books, it, it does not have anything to do with what the Bible says heaven is like. And so whenever we set our eyes on heaven, we want to see what the Bible says about heaven, okay? So that's my only caution to you. So let's look at it. Revelation 21, one through six. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So how many of you guys have heard these phrases before? I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Have you heard that phrase? Maybe some of you have heard this phrase, is that you're so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. Some of you have heard that when they were laughing, right? So, so, so both of these statements, they're, they're partially true because we don't necessarily know the future. We, we don't know what tomorrow holds. And, and there are people that can get so heavenly minded that they forget that we are in a fight here on this earth. But both of those phrases are, are wrong to an extent as well because we do know what the future holds. The, the Bible tells us what the future holds. We know what's coming for us. It's all right here in the book of Revelation. And being heavenly minded is really what makes us useful in this life. 
When we focus on the beauty of heaven and what awaits us there, then that frees us from dependence on the earthly things that we get so trapped up in, tra- wrapped up in, in here and now. It frees us from the dependence on earthly wealth and earthly comfort because we know what weights us are riches beyond compare. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So knowing that our citizenship is in heaven causes us to stand firm right here and right now. That's what Paul says next in Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now that doesn't minimize the reality of our earthly obligations. We still have families to raise. We still have jobs to work. We have taxes to pay. We have voting obligations, etc. All those things. But our primary focus should be in heaven. And notice what Paul does in Philippians 3. He appeals to our patriotic pride and he doesn't appeal to our patriotic pride in country. He appeals to our patriotic pride in heaven. He says that our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. It's in the new Jerusalem. That's our true home. So if that's our true home, if that's where our citizenship is, then we should be governed by its rules, by its principles, by its values. And what he says is it's in the present tense form in the Greek that our citizenship right now, not in the future, but right now, if you're a believer, is in heaven. Not it will be in heaven. It is in heaven. Peter tells us the exact same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So part of being born again is being born into an inheritance and an inheritance that doesn't fade away, an inheritance that doesn't rust or devalue over time, but an inheritance is being kept for you right now in heaven. The Bible tells us that it was the promise of heaven that motivated Abraham all the way back in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 14 and 16. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. But more importantly, I think a focus on heaven helps us endure suffering here in the present. We all will experience the hardship of life. It's not a matter of if we experience hardship, it's just a matter of when. At some point in this life, you will suffer. We all do. And when we experience the hardships of this life, we fix our eyes on heaven knowing that there's coming a day where those hardships and those difficulties will be no more. Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The best place that we see this principle is probably in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. It's a verse that's near and dear to my family's heart. What does Paul tell us? So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light, I like that, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient. That means they're fleeting, they're, they're temporary, they're here today, they're gone tomorrow. But the things that are unseen, they're eternal. What Paul's getting at is that you and I are given strength for our hardships on this earth when we focus on the things that we can't see. When we focus on the fact that there's an inheritance for us in heaven, when we know that one day all the things that we're going to read about today are going to come true, that enables us to stand in the middle of our sufferings going that, hey, once we get to heaven, all this stuff's going to seem so light and minor. It's going to be like that paper cut that we thought was so bad, but it really wasn't. It's just going to be so tiny compared to what we have awaiting for us in heaven. So listen to me. It's good to focus on heaven. John sees heaven. And I think the best way that we study this text is we have to look at what's there and what's not there. So I want you to first notice as we come to the end, John sees what? He sees a new heaven and a new earth. So as you come to the end, it's not really about an end of creation. It's about the beginning of creation. It's not an escape from reality as we know it, but it's a remaking of reality. So, so over the next few weeks, I'm going to really press you on this. Heaven is not some detached, disembodied place where you go and sit on a cloud and play the harp like Tom and Jerry did. It's not. It is this tangible, physical, real thing. If, if you'll notice, there's walls, there's, there's colors, there's things that we can see, there's things that we can touch. So many of us, we read 2 Peter chapter 3 and we're like, well, yeah, but he's going to burn the world up. It's not a burning and destroying, it's a burning that's purifying. If you've ever seen a grass fire, it looks bad, but what happens a few weeks afterwards? You remember when all that burned up on the way to Fritch several years ago? It looked horrible. But then as you went, all of a sudden, all that green grass started coming back. It purified, it burned it away, and it was pretty there for a time period. So this is what we're talking about. This is remaking of reality. And John doesn't say, hey, we're going to go float in the clouds. What's he say? I see a new heavens and a new earth. And the new Jerusalem, where's it doing? It's coming down. We're told that the sea was no more. So if you love to, to fish and, and be at the beach and all those things, don't be like, well, man, there's no water. That's not what it means. There will be bodies of water in the new heavens and the new earth. What John is getting at is this idea, especially in the Old Testament, that the sea was regarded as this, uh, the place of evil. It was a place of chaos. So if you go read the book of Isaiah, read the book of Jeremiah, over and over again, they refer to the sea in those books. And all the time, it's this place of evil. It's this place of chaos. In Revelation 13, the sea is the origin of the beast. In Revelation 20, it's seen as the place of the dead. In chapter 18, it's the location of the world's idolatrous activity. So what it is, is it's John's way of saying that all evil, all corruption, all unbelief, all darkness will be gone in the new creation. No more tornadoes, no more earthquakes, no more typhoons, no more school shootings, no more killings, no more abuse, uh, no more politicians. All darkness and all evil will be banished from the new heavens and the new earth. There won't be a need for security systems or guns in our home anymore because it'll be a place of safety and peace. There's no more chaos, there's no more evil. And John sees a new city coming. I've already told you, we're not escaping this earth. We live on a renewed earth, we'll live in a new city. The letter was written to seven churches, to them for us. 
uh, the original audience, they could not imagine a city that was holy. Cities were cesspools of corruption and idol worship. It's no different in our day and age, is it? We look at the city as country folks and be like, man, that, those people down in Austin. Right? Sorry, Austin folks. I, I love you guys. Right? Like, or we go, look at New York City. But, but it's really no different than here in our, our towns. Even our, our little communities can be places full of corruption and evil. But John says, hey, look, behold, take an eye, look up and see this new city coming down out of heaven. And here's what I want you to see. This is God's work, not ours, people. Regardless of, of what so many of the elite in our society want to tell us right now, we are not going to evolve to build some magnificent society. Go and implement all the Green New Deal stuff you want to do. It isn't going to make people all of a sudden better. All of a sudden we're like, whoa, look at this world. We rebuilt. We did that. We're pretty amazing. Not going to happen. We don't bring heaven here. God brings heaven here. It's God's work. It's God's creation. It's God's city. We didn't form the first creation. We certainly won't form the second. It is a gift of grace. It's something that we could never, ever do on our own. But the new Jerusalem is also a people. It's us. It's you and I. So, so we will dwell in the new Jerusalem, but in another sense, we are the new Jerusalem. And verse 3 shows us that we'll have this intimate fellowship. Look what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throat saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. See, that's what heaven's really about. Without God, we don't have heaven. The goal of us as Christians is, is to get to heaven to be with him, to see Jesus. Without that, man, your loved ones and all those people that have gone before that we get to see, great. But without Jesus, it ain't heaven. Our goal, our aim is Jesus. And when we get there and we are with him, there's going to be this, this sense of fellowship. So check this out. No longer will there be that feeling of distance between God and us. There won't be that feeling that, man, we're praying and praying and praying and our prayers are just hitting the ceiling. You ever had that feeling? I think my prayers are going nowhere. I'm crying out day and night and I don't feel like God hears them at all. There won't be that feeling that God's absent from our lives. Any of you struggle with loneliness? Any of you struggle with, hey, there's so many people in the room, but yet I feel all alone? You ever get that feeling? That, that's one of my constant companions. I tell Mariah that all the time. Like, I just, I feel lonely so often. And one day, that's going to be gone. One day, our closest and most intimate friend will be God himself. And so if you came in here today and you're like, man, God just feels so distant from my life, then this text is good news because one day you will always and forever be with God and he will forever be with you. Verse four tells us that tears of sorrow will be banished. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, we can't weep in sorrow when we're with God, and he's with us. Tears of joy and gratitude? Oh yeah, no doubt, those will be there. For sure they will. But sorrow and grief? Not a chance. And check something out. You don't wipe away your tears. 
God wipes away the tears for us. So, so get, your, get that image in your head. You're standing there and he comes up with a Kleenex or, or whatever he's gonna use and he wipes away your tears. So many of us carry sorrow and grief. So many of us are just trying to get through the day without breaking down and God will one day make sure that he wipes away every tear and the reason is it'll be because he has banished every experience of pain and sorrow in this world. That's the fulfillment of scripture. Joe read it, Isaiah 35, 10, and the ransom of the Lord, that's us, shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And here's the best part. The greatest cause of so much of our sorrow is death. If you notice what verse four says, death will be no more. No more death. So, so no longer will we lose husbands and wives and children and brothers and sisters and grandparents. No longer will we live in a world where babies die. Funeral homes, out of business. They can't make money anymore. Old Hansford, just be a beautiful draw again. There won't be a cemetery down there. No tears, no death, no pain. But check this too not just pain that's, that's from, from death or from losing a loved one. There won't be any more physical pain. Our bodies will be glorified and made like the body of Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 53 and 56, Paul says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. No more diabetes, no more cancer, no more disease. No longer will you ask to ask, why me? Why do I hurt? Why am I going through this? No longer will you have to ask, how long, O oh Lord? So those of you in this room, and I know many of you who live in constant chronic pain, this is a call for you to persevere, to endure, to hold fast. God is telling you there is a day coming where all that will be no more. Your pain will be gone. So not just the pain of death, not just the physical pain, but listen, all emotional pain will be wiped away. So, so the pain of, of a bad marriage, the, 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 the marital pain that we carry, the relational pain that we carry, the pain of disappointment, the pain of loss of every kind will be gone. Those of us in the room who wrestle with depression and anxiety will be set free because the former things have passed away and he's making all things new. Verse five. I'm making all things new. Can I tell you what that means in the Greek? All things new. That's what it means. All things new. Your battle with sin, whatever that sin is that trips you up, you know what it is, it'll be over. Your frustration with not being able to do what you know is right will be gone. The struggle to control your thought life will be gone. We'll be made new bodily. 
And again, this is not some disembodied, floating on a cloud, orb-like weird thing. There will be enough continuity between what we look like now that we will recognize one another. We're not going to float on some cloud, play a harp, and and we'll talk about this in a little bit more. It's, It's not some weird spiritual deal. This is like a tangible, physical thing. So listen, gone are defects and disabilities. Listen, some of y'all need to hear this. Those of you who hate your body, who look in the mirror every day and don't like what you see, and you see nothing but guilt and shame, those of you who constantly are on the gram looking at other people and you just feel envious of them and you're frustrated, you won't have that feeling anymore. Gone. You won't have to feel the way you do blemishes will be eliminated deafness and blindness no more you won't spend eternity as some disembodied soul or spirit you'll live forever in a new transformed glorified body god that's good news I got a weird thing that happens to me from time to time and you may think I'm crazy which is fine most of you maybe already do I don't know okay thanks Don um Every now and then I can be sitting at the house or I could be sitting somewhere and I hear a noise. And I can turn around and, and for a brief moment, I, I think I see my daughter standing or walking out of her bedroom. I had this dream and it happens a lot where I wake up to go in the room to get her up in the morning and she's not there because she's got up and walked into the living room. I love watching my kids come home from school. Do y'all remember those days, like if you had little ones? Like, like before all the drama hits and they just loved going to school and coming home. I, and I love it. And I stand at the corner and I watch them come home and Ellie's always riding her back. Hey, you know, she's just happy. She's in her own world. Life's good. Yeah. It's good. Hey, it's a compliment. You're all right. And the other day, that, that very thing happened to me again. It was like I looked up for a brief moment and I, and I thought I saw Lucy walking home from school, not, not riding home. You know, and th- this has been such an emotional thing for me studying this week because, listen, as I believe these words with all my heart, and you know why? Look what he says in verse five. For these words are trustworthy and true. Write it down. Take it to the bank. One day I won't have to just have this vision. One day I'll see it. One, one day it'll happen. And I didn't wait for that day. And so that's my hope. And it's, it's not a kind of, sort of hope. It's a confident expectation that this is going to happen. Because God says it's trustworthy and true. In other words, God's saying, I'm staking my entire reputation on this thing. And verse 6, look what he says. And he said to me, it is done. Remember, study in the Greek. That's not future tense. He's saying right now, right here, where we sit, it's done. It's finished. He has already done this. Everything that he's promised has already happened. Everything he has promised is as good as done. He says he's the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last. He's the source. He's the cause of all things. He's the final goal of history. Everything originates from him and all things find meaning and value in how it glorifies him. Listen to what Sam Storm says. This means that there was nothing before him. Nothing explains him. Nothing has caused him. He simply and eternally is. 
There never was a time when God was not. There was never a time when he began to be. There will never be a time when he isn't. He never at any time chose to be what he is. He has always been what he is, always and is always and always will be. God did not emerge out of a, out of a variety of possibilities. Rather, everything emerged out of him when he called the universe into existence. He's the alpha, but he's also the omega. The goal of all things is the glory of God. The aim of all things is the praise and honor of God. Nothing has any intrinsic value aside from its capacity to enjoy God and to make him known. If history appears aimless to you, I assure you that it is not. Even the most random and seemingly senseless events in some mysterious ways are serving to point to God and to shine a light on his wisdom and justice and power and love and holiness. That's who the Alpha and the Omega is. And then John gives us two promises and a warning. So look at verse six. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now in verse six, I think that's an interesting choice of words because he doesn't say to the one who believes. He says to the one who is thirsty, so, so when I read that and he's just told me what heaven is, I would expect him to be, see, to the one who believes all these things are for him. But instead he says, no, to the one who's thirsty, to the one who thirsts, to the one who desires. So let me tell you what his point is. And I, and I think in the Bible Belt we need to hear this. His point is that saving faith or belief is more than just an intellectual agreement. It's more than, hey, I walked out, shook the preacher's hand, right? Turned around, waved to the congregation, and then I never had anything to do with him again. That's how we believe, and we've done it for years. Our churches are filled with people that way, or not. See, faith is more than that. It's a lifelong pursuit and longing for the things of God. It's thirsting for the satisfaction that only Christ can bring. So there's not a person in here that would say, hey, I prefer hell to heaven. Everyone would raise their hand and be like, hey, man, I'm taking heaven. I, I love that deal. I want it. I'm in. Let's go. But so many of us prefer anything else over God. Everyone is thirsty in the sense that all people long for satisfaction in life. Unbelief is the preference of the soul for the things of the world to find satisfaction in instead of God himself. So when he says he'll give the water of life, he's not talking about length of life. He's talking about quality of life here. That by thirsting after him, we find life the way it was meant to be. We find that our souls are filled, that our souls are satisfied when we pursue him. And what I want you to notice is that this is all given without payment. So you can't pay God for the water of life. It's not like you're gonna walk up and be like, hey, how much you want for it, man? You can't do it. You can't bargain for it. You can't say, well, I'm gonna do so many good deeds and then you'll give me the water of life. It doesn't work that way. Your thirst doesn't earn the water. Your thirst doesn't merit the water. Thirst is not a work. It's a way of referring to faith. So to be thirsty means to be desperate and empty knowing that only God can satisfy. And the water is free. It's free for those who come empty-handed and say, 
I got nothing, give me a drink. We just sang it in that song, didn't we? Come, those who have nothing, he is the offering. It's such a funny thing that God does. We, we don't have to fulfill a condition to drink this water. We're not saved by works. God graciously enables the condition he requires. So if you're thirsty, it's because God graciously enabled that in your heart. If you're not thirsty today, you can be by turning and trusting in Jesus Christ. To those who conquer, he says he grants the heritage of being God's son or daughter. Again, this is why I, I tell you, I, I don't see us getting out of here before things get rough because he over and over again tells us to conquer, to persevere, to hold fast. To those who conquer, to those who persevere in the faith despite persecution. Think back to the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter two. What does he tell them? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you'll have tribulation, but be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So conquering means experiencing victory over the forces of Satan and the world that tempt us to abandon faith in Christ. We endure, we hold on. And when we do that, he says, we get to be called sons and daughters. It means that you and I get all that God has. The new heavens and the new earth, they're ours. It's the father of the prodigal son setting aside his dignity and all that he has in running down the road and embracing us and giving us a ring and rope. That's what this means. So, so those of us who thirst, who, who long for him, that enables us to conquer and then we will be with him. And then listen, look at the warning in verse 28. Let's read it again. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's kind of a pointed warning in a chapter that's so wonderful about heaven. You're like, oh, it's so wonderful. Wait a minute. And it's funny, every chapter on heaven is this way. He's gonna describe all these wonderful things, but then there's always gonna be a verse or two in there where he's gonna be very pointed about uh, a lack of faith. And so what he's doing here is he's, he's calling for people to repent and to come to faith in Christ. So he starts with cowards and he ends with liars. It's really just John's way of saying all character traits and behaviors that are inconsistent with the kingdom of God. So you got homework today. Go back and read Galatians chapter five and Galatians six this afternoon. There's all this list of behaviors that Paul lists in there. All these things that get, Paul says, hey, these kinds of things will not be allowed in God's kingdom. And then now we come to the end of the book and we're like, oh man, that's due today. Like, like God really meant business. Like he wasn't just joking in, in Galatians 5 and 6. Like he really means those things. Like these kind of people won't be there. And so what I want to do is just, let's focus on cowardly and on liars though. So, so this isn't just a general condemnation of those two behaviors. Uh, it, it, you've all lied before. There have been times where we've all been cowards before. So it's not like a momentary slip up. Peter was a coward, was he not, when he denied Christ to the little slave girl? It's not just this momentary lapse. It speaks, first off, to the life situation of John's readers. So remember, in the Roman Empire, the Romans didn't care who you worshiped. They didn't care. Romans like, hey man, go be a Christian. That's fine, do your thing. But you do need to pay a temple, a visit to the temple, at least once a year, 
offer a little incense on the altar there and, and, and say, Caesar is Lord. If you'll do that just once a year, just say Caesar's Lord, not Jesus, Caesar, then you can conduct business, right? You can go out and eat in a restaurant. You can go do whatever you want to do. If you'll just go do these things, you're cool. We, we don't care, but you have to do that. But listen, if you did that, you're denying that Jesus is Lord, correct? So in a sense, they're lying. So they're cowards because they prefer the safety of blending in with the ways of the world. They just kind of want Rome off their back instead of standing out by faith in Christ and embracing the persecution that that would bring. So we could say that he refers to people that say they're Christians, but they're not. I believe this with all of my heart, and I think we're seeing it right now, is that there's a great sorting beginning to happen in our churches we're finding out who the true believers are and who aren't. COVID was just the start. All the, all the, the, the justice issues and all those things that are kind of coming out of some of that, that's just the start. There's a sorting happening. And, and this is a warning for those of us who would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. In other words, I walked the aisle sometime way back when, I don't know when, shook the preacher's hand. I'm a Christian. But in fact, we aren't. We have no thirst for the water that God provides. We prefer to blend in with the world than to be persecuted. We, we prefer to be liked by all the celebrities and the elite in our little small towns than to stand out and have somebody go, well, you're kind of crazy for believing what you believe, aren't you? I mean, man, come on. Taking your kids to church again? Come on, man. See, we prefer to blend in than be persecuted. And John tells us that we'll all face God in the end. He's the alpha. He's the omega. And it's a warning to tell us that those who prefer the passing pleasures offered by the world will meet God as the one who punishes in the lake of fire. While those who thirst for God and the blessings of forgiveness and fellowship and joy, they will be theirs as they meet him in heaven. And they'll see him as their father and they will enjoy eternal life with him. So if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. I'm gonna have my deacons come up and here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go to the Lord's table this morning and we're gonna remember what Jesus did for us in his first advent. Yes, we celebrate the baby and we should, but as I said earlier, that baby was born to die. That baby was born to take our sins upon him. And so today, if you're a believer in this room and you're a guest, the Lord's table is open to you. If you're not a Christian, hey, we're just gonna ask that you sit this one out. We're not trying to pick on you. We're not trying to be rude. We just believe that the Bible tells us that this is for the family. And so we're just gonna ask that you sit this one out. Nobody's gonna judge you or look down on you. For the rest of us believers, brothers, sisters, Christians, the Bible tells us not to take this cup in an unworthy manner. And so right there where we're at, before we partake, we, we need to make sure that, that we're not doing that. And so if you would take a moment, confess any unrepented sin. All of us need to confess the ways that we're guilty of trying to blend in and be cowardly instead of standing up for Jesus and living for him, for the one who did so much for us. And then if you're in here and you don't know Jesus, as the gospel was proclaimed today, Maybe you'd say, man, something's changed. I, I don't know what it was. I just know I came in here and now all of a sudden I, I, I just, there's been this shift in my heart. Tell somebody today 
that for the first time you've trusted in Jesus. And then guess what? What a cool way to say, hey, I got to go to the table today for the first time. To remember that Jesus died a death in my place for my sins and that he rose again and that he's coming again one day. And then when we're done, let's celebrate the fact that he's coming back and we get to enjoy the glories of heaven forever and ever and ever with our God. So Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you for the promise that awaits us. I thank you that you are making all things new and that this is something that we can uh, take to the bank. You've staked your reputation on it. You're faithful and true. And so today, I, I pray that as we go to the table, we would remember what you did for us in your first advent, and then we would turn our eyes to look forward to your second advent. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.